All right, so in this podcast, we're going to be looking at colonization in the South from 1600 to 1750. In the last few podcasts, we looked at pre-colonial Native Americans and then Europe and Asia right on the eve of colonization and then moving into the first uh, century or two. Now it's like full steam ahead. Major European powers are colonizing. What's happening, right? So... Look at the founding of New Mexico in the Spanish North American colonies we're going to talk about first. So rumors start spreading throughout Mexico about riches in the north and New Spain, their viceroy, which is like a governor, essentially, started talking and wanting, you know, for a New Mexico that's going to be just as profitable as, you know, its namesake of Mexico. And he needs a leader to try and make this happen. So, this is going to be Juan de Añote. Juan de Añote, uh, spelled O-N-A-T-E, but it's got the little, you know, squiggly over the N, the Ñe, right? So, he is the son of one of the richest miners in New Spain, one of the richest silver miners. His husband, or he is husband, sorry, to Isabel de Tolosa is her name, and Isabel is the granddaughter of Hernan Cortez. And Cortez, that conquistador, he had taken the daughter of Montezuma as a bride. And so her great-grandfather was then Montezuma. So Isabel has some very wealthy genes, right? She's got some very prestigious genes going on. But her husband, Juan de Añote, is chosen to lead the establishment of this new colony in the New Mexico. So in 1598, he's going to lead about 500 colonists, soldiers, and slaves to the upper Rio Grande area. And he thinks he can, you know, sail up the Pacific Ocean to Pueblo country and resupply the colony twice a year. And the Pueblos, they encounter, are very eager to avoid any conflict. So, you know, they'll evacuate a village for the colonists to use. A lot of the native leaders were pledging their allegiance to Añote. The Pueblo craftsmen were helping work on irrigation systems for the Spanish. The Indian women that were the traditional builders in Pueblo society. They helped build the region's first Catholic church. And a lot of these colonizers, they mistake, you know, all this cautious courtesy of the Pueblos for subservience, you know. And Añote's nephew or one of them, is a man named Juan de Zaldivar. He is very bold and a lot crueler than many that were trying to colonize at this time. And so at Acoma Pueblo, which was known as Sky City today, and that's just because it's located on top of a very high mesa, but at this location, at Acoma, Zaldivar, he seizes several of their sacred turkeys that they had used in various rituals and they would use the feathers for various artifacts but he seizes these turkeys he kills them and eats them and he answers you know indian protests against this with insults and akoma's men are outraged ends up killing zaldivar and his men and outraged over the death of his older brother Vicente Zaldivar lays siege to Acoma Pueblo, killing about 800 people, and he's going to make slaves of the rest. And Inyote is very desperate to try and salvage this expedition and the efforts of the settlement, 
So he and many followers, they work very fruitlessly on searches for gold and silver. Vicente Zaldivar tries to domesticate bison, which will fail. And a lot of these people fear they're not able to secure a living in New Mexico, so they just go back to New Spain. But in 1606, Oñate is going to be recalled by the royal authorities and brought up on charges of mismanagement and abusing Indians. New Mexico is going to be virtually abandoned except for the Franciscan monks that claim it's a crime to abandon all the Indians that they have baptized. And the Franciscans, they're going to be a big key player in Spanish North America. And the Franciscans are members of a medieval religious order that was founded by St. Francis of Assisi. And the Franciscan monks, you know, they own no personal property. They remain celibate. They beg, you know, just for alms or donations. They accept donations from wealthy patrons. But the Franciscans, they had accompanied Columbus back on his second voyage, and they start ministering to the central Mexican Indians soon after the fall of Tenochtitlan. By the 1570s, Spanish authorities, they're now going to start secularizing or mainstreaming central Mexico's missions, and turn them into self-supporting parishes. And the Franciscans are going to be very powerful figures in colonial New Mexico. The Jesuits will build several missions in present-day Arizona. But the Crown, they need the Franciscans in Florida for strategic purposes. So as long as the pirates' arrival colonies on the Atlantic seaboard were threatening the Spanish shipping interests, the Spanish king has no way to really control Florida and he has to so Pedro Menendez de Aviles this guy he's going to do a lot to try and secure that Florida peninsula when he destroys Fort Caroline in the 1560s and he's then going to establish several posts all along the coast he will be gone passed away by 1600 and so now in Florida all they got is St. Augustine that was enduring with about 500 people. So Florida needs something more to survive. So the Spanish king first is going to offer to extend trading privileges and diplomatic presence to the natives of the peninsula. The native leaders promise to support the Spanish in war, tax their people on behalf of the king as well. And so once all these alliances are established, the native communities are then made to accept the Franciscan missions and a few resident soldiers. By 1675, there's going to be 40 missions ministering to as many as 26,000 baptized Indians in Florida. And so the mission system and this whole network of Indian alliances, it convinces the Spanish authorities they can then keep their presence on this critical region. And back in Southwest, looking at New Mexico region again, so Santa Fe looking at Santa Fe. So as the 17th century is progressing, New Mexico will then stabilize and there's enough Spanish colonists to re- remaining there to establish a separate town, which is known as La Villa Real de la Santa Fe. And it's going to be established in 1610. And so after St. Augustine, Santa Fe is the second oldest European town that has been continuously occupied. By 1675, New Mexico has a diverse colonial population of around 2,500 people, uh, and it's a mixture of Spaniards, Africans, Mexican Indians, Mestizos, which are people of mixed Spanish Indian heritage, 
and mulattoes, which are mixed Spanish-African heritage. And so all these numbers are also going to include high volume of Indian captives as well. And occasionally, you know, these Indian captives, they come to the Spanish homes through war. Spanish also purchase enslaved women and children from other Indians. But beginning in the 1620s, smallpox kills about 70% of the population, the Indian population, within a generation. And New Mexico originally had around 100 native villages or so, but by 1680, only 30 will remain. And since 1598, the Franciscans, they have been working to try and suppress all the dances, idols, and ceremonies of the Pueblos that they had long been using in their form of worship. By the 1670s, Pueblo elders are arguing that the issues of, you know, the past decades that have been afflicting their people can be reversed if they reject Christianity and return to their old faith. And so there's kind of a revival movement that pops up. And the Franciscans and the local authorities, they wanted to try and stop this, so they arrest Pueblo leaders. They will actually execute two and whip dozens more, about 40, a little over 40, in front of very large crowds. And one of these men that's whipped was a man known as Pope. It's spelled like Pope, it just has an accent over the E, so Pope. But he goes to Taos to recover from his injuries after being whipped. And he calls for war against the Spaniards to try and purify the land. Many people, sometimes entire villages, refuse to participate in this with him. So he's not really getting huge widespread support for a little bit. But on August 10th, 1680, Indians from all across New Mexico rise up and begin killing Spaniards. Uh, They'll pursue the survivors all the way to Santa Fe. And within weeks, the Spanish governor gathers the remainder of the colonial population and flees south out of New Mexico. And this is known as the Pueblo Revolt. So the Pueblo Revolt, uh, the 1680s, in 1680s specifically, this is the most successful pan-Indian uprising in North American history. And pan-Indian, that just means it wasn't just one group of Indians it crossed various tribes, right? Various communities. So that's what we mean when we say Pan-Indian. All right. So that's the Southwest. Now let's start looking back East with those English colonies. So first things first, we're gonna talk about mercantilism. And mercantilism, this is a European economic doctrine that calls for very strict regulation of the economy to ensure balance of exports and imports. And you want to have more things you're exporting out of your country than things you're importing in. And that's to try and increase the amount of gold and silver that is in your nation's treasury. And if you can make do without input imports from any other country, then that's even better. But colonial producers uh, in the colonies, they have the raw materials. The mother country can't produce them. Colonial consumers increase the demand for finished goods and financial services that the mother country then provides to them. And so this logic then leads King James I to approve a private venture to colonize the Chesapeake Bay area. 
which is home to more than 100 different rivers and streams. And so in 1606, King James I, he will grant a charter to a group of British merchants and aristocrats, incorporating them as the Virginia Company of London. And the Virginia Company was a joint stock company. The men in the company sold stock to British investors and would award a share to those willing to settle in Virginia at their own expense. So in 1607, there's going to be 104 men and boys of the expedition that will then settle and pitch tents in a very swampy marsh area known as Jamestown. And they do this to prevent any surprise attack by the Spanish. But these men become weakened by bouts of disease, dysentery, typhoid, yellow fever, and it kills them off very rapidly. Before sickness starts to take its toll, a lot of the colonists have very little taste for manual labor. And the aristocrats in the group, they were expecting to just be leaders rather than actual workers. And the servants and craft workers that come on the voyage with them know nothing about crops and agriculture. (laughs) So through the winter of 1609 to 1610, a couple years later, right? Only 60 of the 500 colonists will actually live through that winter. Uh, Being very desperate for food, many people will, this is very sordid, grim history, but many of them will unearth corpses, dig up corpses, and resort to cannibalism. Others will bully Indians for food. But uh, Captain John Smith, that had been on the original 1607 expedition, He tries to implement martial law, which is basically you don't work, you don't eat. If you want your food ration, then you got to work. And he implements martial law, but it fails to turn the situation around. And there's going to be more skirmishes with natives that become much more brutal and more frequent, unfortunately. So what kind of turns Jamestown around? So they... First, we'll start implementing a headright system. And headrights, for those that were already living in Jamestown, they received 100 acres. 100 acres of land per person. Uh, and any new arrivals coming over, they got 50 acres. Plus an additional 50 acres for each person they brought. So if you were... The male head of the household, you brought, you know, your wife and four children and a servant. That's an additional six people you get. So that's another 300 acres that you get, basically. Pretty sweet deal. But uh, in the 1620s, the first wave of English migration to the Chesapeake is going to consist of free and unfree laborers between about 130. 30,000 to 150,000 people all throughout the 17th century. Indentured servants will be about three-fourths of all these immigrants coming to Virginia. And so just explaining what indentured servants are, back in England, you know, searches for work is pushing a lot of young men and women out of their villages and into the cities. And when that fails, many decide, well, I'll move across the Atlantic and I'll sign indenture. And indenture is where... You know, you can't pay for something. Somebody agrees to pay for the cost of your voyage, but they expect 
work out of you for so many years. But this work is all unpaid, right? You sign a contract to work for them as a servant unpaid for so many years. And then at the time of that indenture, you are then free again. But the death rate in Virginia during the 1620s is higher than that of England during a major epidemic at this time. Life expectancy for a man of 20 was only about 48 years. And it was even lower for women. And servants feared the worst because there's malnutrition, overwork, abuse, all these factors that make them very vulnerable to disease. An estimated 40% of servants do not survive to the end of their indentured terms. And cultivation of tobacco puts more pressure on Indian land. And once Powhatan, who was the father of Pocahontas, dies in 1617, leadership of his confederacy passes to another man. His name is Opachankano. It's not important to know how to spell or anything if you're like in one of my classes, but Opachankano, just if you want to know, it's O-P-E-C-H-A-N-C-A-N-O-U-G-H. So O-P-E-C-H-A-N-C-A-N-O-U-G-H. But Opachankano, he is watching year after year as tobacco mania is spreading. So tobacco turns out to be the big cash crop of Virginia that saves Jamestown essentially. And Opachankano, he's going to coordinate an attack on the white settlements that kills roughly one fourth of the colonial population of Virginia. Over the next decade, colonial retaliation kills an entire generation of Indian men, drives the remaining Indians to the West. And this won the colonists hundreds of thousands of more acres for planting tobacco. And once the tobacco boom breaks in the 1630s and 40s, Virginians start producing more corn and cattle. Nutrition and overall health will improve. As a result, more and more colonists start surviving their indenture and establishing modest little farms of their own. But even with the conditions improving, there's still very high mortality rates that kill off many of the colonists. One out of every four children born in the Chesapeake do not reach age of maturity and those that do reach maturity to their 18th birthday about a third of all of them had lost both of their parents in some form or fashion to disease or what ha what have you but Jamestown isn't going to be the only colony for very long so Maryland yes Maryland uh, Maryland was established by a single aristocratic family in 1632 known as the Calverts, C-A-L-V-E-R-T-S, Calverts, and they were given absolute authority to dispose of 10 million acres of land as they wished. And so they would grant estates or manors to their friends, divide other land holdings into smaller farms for immigrants. And all of these tenants on the land would pay rent to the family or fees for using land. And the Virginians don't like the Calverts. For one, they are Catholic. Yes, so think back to the Protestant Reformation. The Church of England was established. And most of the Jamestown colonists were Protestant. 
They were members of the Church of England. And then you have this big Catholic colony right next door. And the Calverts have made Maryland a safe haven for Catholics because after the Reformation, there's quite a few areas where Catholics start getting persecuted in Europe. And these countries that start to have big uh, Protestant followings. But the Maryland settlers, they are a big source of economic competition for the Virginians. By 1640, 2,000 people had settled on the Calvert Holdings. Virtually all of them were planting tobacco. But the Palatine Confederacy remains in the area. They were constantly bullied by the colonists to give them their corn, other food supplies. And at this time, colonists are usually growing tobacco rather than actual food. So the Virginia Indians that were part of the Confederacy, they start, or they decide they're going to risk another war. And Opechancano, he's going to send a new generation of Indians in 1644 to attack the Virginia planters that want their land. And it kills several hundred settlers, but Opechancano is eventually captured and he is killed and with that, the whole Powhatan Confederacy dies in the process, essentially. But during the 1630s and 40s, the British Crown wasn't really interested in the colonies very much because England is in the midst of a civil war. So after King James I, King Charles I had shown a lot of contempt toward Parliament, so some outraged elites and radical Puritans will overthrow him and have him beheaded in 1649. And England will then have a republic for a short period of time under Oliver Cromwell, but it was more of a military dictatorship, not really a true republic, as we might think. But the English are pretty happy to see the monarchy restored in 1660 with the return of Charles II, son of the king that was beheaded. And Charles had flee to the Netherlands to Holland for exile so he would be protected and safe there and he then comes to back to England to restore the monarchy and Charles II he wants to see both the colonies and subjects at home contribute to the prosperity of England so he begins a policy with a series of regulations in the 1660s and 70s that are known as the Navigation Acts. And what these did was it required the colonies to trade only with Britain. And these acts, they restricted all the colonial trade with any other country that is a rival of Britain. So they're saying you can only trade with us. You can't trade with anyone else. And the planters and the American colonies, you know, they were very happy to trade with the Dutch because, you know, the mother country, England, was at war. But now their economy suffers because the acts come right when the tobacco prices drop. So not so good. In 1676, fighting between the Indians and colonists starts back up. The royal governor of Virginia, a man named William Berkeley, he wanted to build forts to protect them against Indian attacks. The frontier farmers that are kind of on the outlying areas, they were very opposed to it, saying it's too expensive and ineffective to try and defend their plantations that are so scattered and then comes along a man named nathaniel bacon he was wealthy well connected recently arrived from england he was expecting to get you know favors and be in the inner circle of the governor 
And one of the favors he expected was the permission to trade with the Indians from his frontier plantation. But Berkeley and a few of his friends had already held a monopoly on all the Indian trade. And they refused to include Bacon. So Bacon's going to take up the cause of his poor frontier farmers. And he is joined by some other not so bad, you know, but well-to-do immigrants that resented being excluded from that trade circle of Berkeley's. And what happens is in 1676, Bacon with a group of armed men, they will march into Jamestown, bully the assembly into approving an expedition to kill Indians. And Berkeley declares Bacon a rebel for carrying this out. Both sides will get allies among servants and slaves willing to join them. Bacon and his forces will set fire to Jamestown and it is reduced to a mound of ash. In September of 1676, they burn Jamestown down to the ground and Bacon will eventually die from dysentery, like that good old Oregon Trail. I mean, you have died from dysentery, right? And that then ends the rebellion with his death. Nobody else picks up the cause to continue it. But Virginia is not the only one having some issues. There's political upheaval in Maryland not long after Bacon's Rebellion. The Calverts and their friends were monopolizing all the political offices. And the well-to-do planners, they wanted to share the power as well. Smaller farmers, they're wanting a less expensive, more representative government and there are also religious differences. You know, the Calverts are Catholic. All of their friends are Catholic. Most of the other colonists, though, are Protestant. So in July of 1689, a former member of the assembly, a guy named John Coode, C-O-O-D-E, he gathers an army that then captures the governor. But what's different is Coode and these guys, they actually take their grievances to England. They get a ship and sail back to England and address their concerns in front of the king. And he gets a pretty sympathetic hearing there. The charter for the Calverts is revoked, taken away, and it will be restored, but not until 1715 when the family becomes Protestant. So after all these rebellions, the farmers and planters, they start fighting less, cooperating more, but there's a big stark contrast with the inequality of white society at this time, especially with the rich and then poor planters. The only thing that really saves white society from further rebellion is the growth of African slavery. And most English settlers, they were preferring white servants from most of the 17th century because they're cheaper. And black slaves, they do serve for life, but they don't live for very long because of various diseases and such and just the living conditions in general uh so black slaves they're considered too expensive to try and import they're considered a bad investment african slaves were arriving in the colonies as early as 1619 most likely with the dutch and they do share quite a bit in common with the white servants you know like harsh work routines and living conditions many of the first black settlers did not come straight from africa but instead they were coming from the Caribbean where they had learned English and adopt Christianity. And death rates drop, slaves become a more profitable investment, planners can expect 
decades of work from slaves. They also have title to any children their slaves bear. And white servants, they start not coming over as often as the African slaves were. And by 1700, slave imports were reaching about 20,000 a year. So what kind of starts off this whole slave trade? Well, sugar cultivation, <laughs> it was prospering after 1600 when slave imports rise to 19,000 a year in the 17th century. And in the 18th century, they rise to 60, 60,000 a year. And as the slave trade's growing, slavery itself becomes more widespread in African society. And African merchants and political leaders that were investing in the slave trade, they're able to build their own new chiefdoms in states like Dalme, Asante, the Lunda Empire. And they're spelled Dalme is D-A-H-O-M-E-Y, Asante, A-S-A-N-T-E, and then Lunda, L-U-N-D-A the Lunda Empire. So these are all really well-known big uh, chiefdoms in the Western Africa region that built everything based on the slave trade, essentially. But those that have been taken as slaves, uh, originally there were, you know, criminals, debtors, political activists that are being captured. Instead, now it's, well, we're going to capture people in a village raid that is specifically for the purpose of capturing slaves. We're going to raid this village just to take as many people as we can as slaves. And even worse than bondage is the village across the Atlantic called the Middle Passage. And it is a nightmare, right? It could take anywhere from three weeks to three months, all depending on currents, weather, where the ships are disembarking and landing, but several hundred black men, women, and children are all packed below decks, squeezed onto platforms with built-in tiers, and they're put so close to each other that sitting upright is impossible. And historians over the years have estimated that for every 85 enslaved Africans that sets foot in North America, 15 had died during the Middle Passage. So basically, like if you're looking at 100 on a ship, 15% die on the voyage. But once they reach American soil, they it's even harder just trying to stay alive. The first year is the most deadly for unseasoned slaves. And a lot of them may have had a, the sickle cell anemia, the sickle cell genetic trait that gives them immunity to malaria, which is great if you live in, you know, swampy, marshy land like the Chesapeake. But these slaves, they're very highly susceptible to respiratory infections. And about a fourth or a quarter of all Africans die during the first year in the Chesapeake. And the mortality rates in the Carolinas or in Caribbean are gonna be even higher. So this starts to change the Chesapeake society, the slavery does. So exchanging this labor system based on servitude for one based on slavery, it definitely is going to transform Chesapeake society. And most obviously the number of Afro-Virginians rises sharply, dramatically. By 1740, 
40% of all Virginians are black and most of them are born in Africa. And unlike many African men and women who were arriving from the Caribbean earlier, the new inhabitants have very little familiarity with English language and culture. So these newer uh, slaves coming over, they are coming directly from Africa, essentially. And it's a larger, more distinctive African community that is now locked into a slave system that's becoming more rigid and more demeaning. By the late decades of the 17th century, new laws are making it more difficult for masters to free their slaves. Other legislation systematically starts separating the races and they prohibit free black settlers from having white servants. They outlaw interracial marriages and sexual relationships as well. And the legal code really fosters racism and white contempt for these black Virginians in a variety of ways. So masters are prohibited from whipping their white servants on the bareback, but slaves don't have that protection, for instance. And the new laws reflect and encourage racism among the white colonists of all classes and deepening racial hatred in turn makes it unlikely that white planners, tenants, servants are ever going to join with poor black slaves to challenge all that privilege of the planners. But the leaders of the Chesapeake colonies, they definitely cultivate unity among all the white inhabitants by improving the economic prospects for the freed servants and the poor farmers and planters. The Virginia Assembly, which is their government, they make provisions for freed servants to get a better start as small independent farmers. They lower taxes, allow small planters to keep more of their earnings. Economic trends toward the end of the 17th century contributes to the greater prosperity of the smaller planters, and that's because tobacco prices will rise just a little and then stabilize. So it's not as uh, volatile a market like all over the place with the prices going up and down all the time. It starts to stabilize. And after 1700, the Chesapeake area itself evolves into a more stable society. And so we don't have, you know, these wild landless young bachelors just one step ahead of the law. They're all gone at this point. And you don't see a big mass of exploited servants that are just one step away from rebellion. The poor planners just one step ahead of, you know, financial ruin. This is all gone by that time. And so Virginia, Maryland, they become colonies of farming families. Most of them were small planters that owned between 50 and 200 acres. These families hold no slaves, or if they do, it's like two or three at most. They accept usually without question just the social and political leadership of the superiors, which the superiors at the time, they're these very large wealthy landowners or planters that call themselves the gentry. They're gentlemen, you know. They try to make their own aristocracy in a way. But during the same decade that, you know, the English are coming into the Powhatan lands, they also start colonizing the Caribbean. 
And in the Caribbean, the islands, they extend north and west, kind of like beads on a string in their layout. And it's all from the lesser Antilles to the bigger islands of like Puerto Rico, Hispaniola, Jamaica, Cuba. So at the journey's end, English settlers or sailors, sorry, they find what they think is paradise, right? And these are, you know, shores with these big white sand beaches. And there may be some mountain peaks or rainforests on some of these areas, like Jamaica, for instance. There's quite a bit of jungle all over there. And the earliest arrivals, they didn't want to colonize. They just wanted to actually steal from the Spanish. But after 1604, some English settle on the islands, but very few intend to actually stay. The English do establish permanent plantation colonies in the West Indies. Beyond that, the Caribbean settlements are just kind of jumping off points for a new colony that's going to be in North America on the mainland, and that will be South Carolina. And because there is a very strong West Indian influence, South Carolina develops a social or society area in very distinct ways separate from that of the Chesapeake. But the development in other ways does kind of parallel or mirror the path of Virginia, Maryland. So in both regions you see extreme violence, high mortality rates, uncertainty, and it does eventually give way to stability, but only after several decades, right? But the English had traded and fought the Spanish in the Caribbean since the 1560s. And the English from these islands, they conducted an illegal trade with Spanish settlements that were bound for Seville. And after being weakened by decades of warfare, the Spanish realized they can't hold the West Indies. And the Dutch had driven a wedge into the Caribbean trade routes as well. And the French and English then start to colonize the islands. For about 40 years after 1604, there's going to be about 30,000 immigrants from the British Isles that put up some frontier posts on islands like Barbados, Antigua, Montserrat, St. Kitts, Nevis. And the settlers, some of them are free or if they're not indentured servants. Most of them are all young men. They devote themselves to working as little as possible, doing things like drinking as much as possible, and returning to England as soon as possible, right? They don't want to stick around. So they uh, did cultivate a tobacco, but it's a very poor quality compared to what's in Virginia, Maryland. And they do return a profit, but it's just enough to just maintain the straggling settlements. <clears throat> but then, nearly overnight, sugar cultivation transforms the Caribbean. So, in the 1640s, Barbados planters, they learned uh, from the Dutch how to process sugarcane. The Dutch also supplied African slaves to work the cane fields, market the sugar, uh, or the Dutch, they would then market the sugar for very high prices back in the Netherlands. And sugar plantation slave labor rapidly spreads to other English and French colonies as the Europeans then start 
developing, you know, that sweet tooth for sugar. It used to be scarce. Well, not anymore. And Caribbean sugar is going to make more money for England than the total volume of commodities exported by all of those mainland American colonies. But the desperation of uh, bound or laborers or slaves, it poses a threat to the British planters. So after the Caribbean converts to cultivating sugar, African slaves will gradually replace the indentured servants in the cane fields. And by the beginning of the 18th century, the resident Africans outnumbered the English by about four to one. And fear of servant mutinies and slave rebellions kind of fray the nerves of these island masters. And they try to contain the danger by implementing very harsh slave codes, inflicting brutal punishments on everyone. The planers live under just a constant state of siege, though. So, during the first century of settlement, there's seven major slave uprisings that take place on the English islands. But uh, looking at Carolinas, so the colonization of Carolinas... This begins with the ideas of the royal governor of Virginia, William Berkeley, and a man named Sir John Colleton. He had been a supporter of Charles I uh, that was exiled to the Caribbean at the end of the Civil War in England. And Colleton sees that the Caribbean has a surplus of white settlers. Berkeley knows Virginians need room to expand as well. So together, these two men set their sights south of Virginia. And along with a number of aristocrats, they convinced Charles II to make them joint proprietors in 1663 of a place they called the Carolinas in honor of the king, Charles. And there's a few people from Virginia that had already been kind of squatting in the Albemarle Sand Sound. Blah, blah. Albemarle Sound. That's how we say it, right? But it's spelled A-L-B-E-M-A-R-L-E the Albemarle Sound and the northern part of the Carolina Grant is where it's found. But the proprietors, which are Berkeley and Colton, they provide them with a governor, a representative assembly as well. About 40 years later, in 1701, they split off North Carolina as a separate colony. And it's kind of a desolate region and it's a disappointment. There's aren't really any good harbors or navigable rivers. The colony has really no convenient way to market their produce. So North Carolina remains a pretty poor colony, very sparse spread out population just with general farming. And they produce uh, masts, pitch, tar, turpentine for the shipping industry for building boats and such. But the southern part of the Carolina Grant is more promising, especially in the eyes of Sir Anthony Ashley Cooper, who's the Earl of Shaftesbury. In 1669, Cooper sponsors an expedition of a few hundred English and Barbadian immigrants. They plant the first settlement in South Carolina. By 1680, the colonists had established the center of economic, social, and political life at uh, where the Ashley and Cooper rivers meet. And they named the site Charlestown, later Charleston, after the king. And like so many others before him, Cooper wanted to 
try and create an ideal society in America. His utopia is a place where a few landowning aristocrats and gentlemen rule with the consent of smaller property holders. And Cooper's personal secretary is the renowned philosopher John Locke. And with his help, they draw up an very intricate complex scheme of government that will be called the fundamental constitutions and what the design does is it provides carolina with a governor and a hereditary nobility who together as a council of lords recommend all laws to a parliament elected by the lesser poorer landowners and it's a very utopian ideal at this time but the fundamental constitutions end up meeting the same fate as everything else for America. So instead of peacefully observing the provisions, most of the Carolinians, uh, migrants from Barbados, they plunge into a lot of infighting and wrangling. They challenge proprietary rule. They protest or ignore laws or regulations that get imposed on them. They reject the benevolent vision of Indian relations by the proprietors. So instead, the colonists start off a series of Indian slave wars that nearly destroyed the colony altogether. Yeah, not so fun. But taking very wealthy Barbados as the model, the colonists intend to grow Carolina's economy around cash crops that will be tended by African slaves. But before they can afford to, you know, create this, the newcomers got to have capital investment through trade with the Indians. And colonists will give textiles, metal goods, guns, and alcohol in exchange for hundreds of thousands of deerskins, which they will then export. The trade soon comes to revolve around a commodity that's even more lucrative. And as most people have done throughout history, the southeastern Indian tribes, they sometimes made slaves of their enemies. Traders of the Carolinas were expanding the existing slave culture by turning captives into very highly sought-after prized commodities. And convinced that local Indians are physically weaker than Africans and more likely to rebel or flee, these colonial traders would buy slaves from Indian allies and then export them to other mainland colonies or to the Caribbean. And they find some very eager native partners with this business. So contact with Europe had unleashed a lot of changes in North America. So epidemics were ruining, you know, one people while giving an advantage to another. New commercial opportunities are starting some very fierce, brutal wars over hunting and trading territories. Thousands of Indian families become displaced. Many have to rebuild their lives elsewhere. And so there's a lot of chaos, conflict, and all this movement that gives, you know, these enterprising Indians some opportunity to try and enslave their weaker neighbors and stock up the slave pens in the Carolinas. But by 1700, Florida's Indian peoples are in decline. Charlestown slave traders turn to the very large, powerful confederacies of the Creek, the Chickasaw, Choctaw, and Cherokee that are a little further into the interior, and they encourage them to raid each other. 
before long, slave wars kind of just had their own life force, their own momentum, and they extended as far west as the Mississippi River even. And even natives that deplored violence and despised the English, they felt compelled to participate because they didn't want to become victims themselves. But the trade was becoming very central and integral to Carolina's economy. The colonists all over wanted to profit from it. And in 1702, the governor, James Moore, he's one of the main slave traders of the colony. He launches a raid against St. Augustine, the Spanish uh, colony and Florida's missions as well. And he returns with hundreds of Indian captives. And it inspires even other raids. Over the next few years, the Creeks, the Yamases, and English had laid waste to almost 30 missions, Spanish missions, and it destroys lives and the whole very precarious, already precarious system of Indian alliances that Spain had worked so hard to broker, and the English just destroy it. By 1706, Spanish authority is once again just confined to St. Augustine, and its immediate area within another 10 years, most of Florida is depopulated of Indians. And some evidence suggests that Carolinians have purchased or captured between 30,000 and 50,000 Indian slaves before 1715. Before that date, South Carolina exports more slaves than it imported from Africa or the Caribbean. But in 1715, Carolina's merchants finally pay the price, you know, for all those wars they have been supporting for so long. And since Florida is virtually exhausted of all these slaves, the Yamasee Indians, they grow nervous. They're convinced Carolina is going to turn on them. And so the Yamasees, they decide they're going to strike first. They attack traders, post plantations on the outskirts of Charlestown. They kill hundreds more. They drag even more to Florida to try and sell the slaves in St. Augustine. Lasts only a few months, but the Yamasee War will finally put an end to the regional slave trade. And as for South Carolina, the Yamasee War set them back about 20 years. In the aftermath, the settlers are investing more and more resources in African slaves and cultivating rice and this is a crop that eventually will make South Carolina planters the richest in mainland North America. Unfortunately South Carolina is a very swampy coast which is so perfectly suited for growing rice you got to have lots of water right. It's less suited for human living. So the settlers uh, die in epic numbers because they're weakened by chronic malaria yellow fever, smallpox, respiratory infections, you name it, right? And so the European population grows very slowly and just through immigration, not natural increase. So by 1730, there's only about 10,000 Europeans. And early South Carolinians have very little in common except, you know, harsh conditions of the frontier existence. Most colonists live on isolated plantations. They might die early, which tends to split up families and neighborhoods. After 1700, immigration does intensify 
the ethnic and religious diversity of colonies. So Swiss and German Lutherans are added, Scots-Irish Presbyterians, Welsh Baptists, Spanish Jews. The only courts of the colony will be in Charlestown, though. And churches and clergy of any denomination are going to be pretty scarce. But on the rare occasions when these early settlers came together, they would gather at Charlestown to be a source of escape, basically. They might sue each other for debt, though, haggle over some prices, fight over religious differences or politics, right? But that's when they would finally get to see each other. It was coming to town to take care of business. And the African population is growing at this time, and it gives the settlers in the Carolinas another reason to maintain a united front. So during the first decades of settlement, frontier conditions, scarcity of labor, it was forcing the masters to allow the enslaved Africans greater freedom within their bondage. European and African laborers uh, share chores on farms, on stock raising plantations. Uh, African cowboys would range freely over the countryside. African contributions to colonial defense reinforce racial interdependence and whenever threats arise during the Yamasee War Africans are enlisted in the militia actually and European Carolinians depend on African labor even more after they turn to rice as their cash crop planters start importing slaves in large numbers partly because West Africans are skilled in rice cultivation at this time Europeans uh, harbor some deepening fears of the African workers. And as early as 1708, African men and women had become a majority in the colony. By 1730, they outnumber European settlers by two to one as their colony begins to prosper. European Carolinians put very strict slave codes in effect, like those in the Caribbean. And they then kind of snuff out that very little marginal freedom that the Africans had once enjoyed. And then Georgia is founded. After 1730, Carolinians take comfort not only with newfound prosperity and new political harmony, but also in founding of a new colony on their southern border. South Carolinians like Georgia, uh, a great deal more than like the Virginians, had like Maryland. Because the colony formed a buffer between British North America and Spanish Florida in a lot the same way the Yamasees and Shawnees had before the war. Enhancing the military security of South Carolina is only one reason for the founding of Georgia. Even more important to General James Oglethorpe, he's the founder, uh, and some other idealistic English gentlemen, was their goal of trying to aid the worthy poor. They would provide them with land, employment, and a new start. They envision a colony of hardworking small farmers who would produce silk and wine and thus spare England the need to import the commodities from other countries. And it seems within reach when King George II makes Oglethorpe and his friends the trustees of a new colony in 1732, and he grants them a charter for 21 years, and at the end of that time, Georgia would then revert to royal control. And the trustees didn't empty all the debtors' prisons to populate Georgia. 
like so many people think. They're like, oh, Georgia was just, you know, a penal colony. It was a debtor's colony. No. They freed few debtors, but they recruited from every country in Europe. They recruited especially poor people, paupers, that wanted to or seemed willing to work hard and have professed Protestantism. So the trustees would pay the passage of these people, provide everyone with 50 acres of land, tools, a year's worth of supplies. Settlers that could pay their own way were encouraged to come and they would be granted tracts of land. Much to the dismay of these trustees, the generous offers taken up not only by Protestants that they had hoped for, but also by several hundred Ashkenazin and Sephardic Jews. And Ashkenazin are German Jews. Sephardic Jews are Spanish and Portuguese Jews. And they established a very thriving community in early Savannah. The trustees are determined to ensure that Georgia becomes a small farmer's utopia. And rather than selling the land, the trustees give it away. None of the settlers could own more than 500 acres of land, though. The trustees also outlaw slavery and hard liquor to try and build up habits of industry and sustain equality among all the whites. And it's a very virtuous idea, you know, this egalitarian utopia. It's greeted with very little enthusiasm by the Georgia settlers. And the Georgia settlers, they press for a free market in land. They argue the colony's never going to really prosper until the trustees revoke the ban on slavery. And because the trustees have provided for no elective assembly, settlers can express their discontent by moving to South Carolina, like so many did. And opposition starts mounting and it threatens to depopulate the colony. And so the trustees finally cave. They revoke the restrictions on land, slavery, and liquor a few years before the king assumes control of the colony in 1752. And under royal control, Georgia continues to develop a diverse society, both ethnically and religiously diverse, uh, similar to South Carolina. And the economy is going to be based on, you know, rice cultivation and Indian trade for the most part. So that was the colonization of the South. And we looked a little bit at the Southwest with the Spanish colonies. I hope you enjoyed it. Stick around for more of American history with Professor Cheryl Boswell. Have a good night, y'all.